This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. afternoon good morning good whatever time of day it is ladies and gentlemen we are back with another episode of the do not listen to this podcast i am your host sam lacrosse can you dig it i can okay first of all as i wanted to remind you from last week my book is on sale value economics the study of identity is hitting the digital shelves on june 28 2022 approximately about four weeks from this podcast being dropped I will be providing the links and everything to you guys at a later time. In the meantime, you can get the information down in the link in this podcast. Also on don'treadthisblog.com. All that good stuff and, and fun stuff. More exciting stuff coming from that day at a later time. Anyways, what we wanted to get to today is something different. And one of the last posts from the 2020 era, the OG Don't Read This Blog era, which I found very interesting when I wrote it. I st still think, excuse me, it's very relevant in today's time, although there might have been some things that change, obviously, in two years, and especially our last two years, they have changed a lot. So I think that there might be some things that I said that I might want to change or might want to do everything else I'll do with those in turn. That's the fun of doing these recap posts. But I think right now, this is still a very relevant topic because I did a post about awareness in the early parts of 2021, being aware of things going on in society. And my argument was that if you're too aware of things going on in the world, you begin to see problems everywhere, you become, you become, as Douglas Murray, the great Douglas Murray likes to say, you become like King George in retirement, you're swinging at imaginary dragons and they aren't really there. And I believe that activism has been a very, very popular topic recently, and for good reason a lot of ways, for bad reason a lot of ways. And I think looking at activism from the angle of narcissism and selfishness, which I think a large portion of the quote-unquote activism is today, and the title of this post being Slacktivism is why it is called that in the first place. I think we need to look at it a little bit more and see really where everything works itself into. So I think that the reason that this post was so important for me to get out there was because I wanted to see for myself what the difference between actual and non-activism was. So without further ado, here we go. On Thursday, September 10th, 2020, the impossible happened. The NFL season went underway. It was something that most, myself included, thought was impossible. The coronavirus breakout put an immediate damper on any semblance of professional sports being played, especially ones where giant grown men run into each other at full speed for an average of 87.5 times a game. That's not when the public health officials said social distancing would be appropriate. But being the most well-run and organized league in sports, the NFL got it right as they usually do. 
the testing procedures were immaculate. The players were rigorous in following directions as to the coaches and other staff. Preseason and training camp were cut and tailored until they met restrictions surrounding the regulations of the beer virus. All of which culminated in the playing of football two Thursdays ago when the defending Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs at the time played the always exciting Houston Texans with Deshaun Watson before his little snafu by the Waco Browns happened. But something else happened that affected the NFL during the time of the foreign beer virus. A movement for racial equality that our country had not seen since the 1960s erupted as well. Thousands of NFL players were supportive of this movement. Two of the more prominent voices manifested themselves into two of the biggest stars in the entire league playing on that Thursday night. Two quarterbacks, Deshaun Watson, oof, of the Houston Texans and now the Cleveland Browns, and Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs. The two men had very different upbringings. Mahomes growing up the son of a professional baseball player, and Watson growing up in abject poverty to a single mother. However, they both were incredibly gifted and soon found themselves catapulted to superstardom. They are now the first and second highest players in the NFL, players in the NFL or were at that time, and have achieved an incredible following and influence based on their on and off the field actions. Mahomes and Watson, other along with other star players such as Travis Kelsey and J.J. Watt, started, decided to come together at midfield before the game for what they called a moment of unity. The two teams would line up at the center field, lock arms, and take a moment of silence to commemorate the moment that society was currently immersed in. It was not meant to be divisive. It did not take place during the National Anthem or Lift Every Voice and Sing, otherwise known as the Black National Anthem. No one knelt. They simply wanted to show that they were in it together, and to send a message to everyone watching that they were advocates in the fight for equality. But some people didn't see it that way. In fact, some people didn't like it at all. Right as the moment of unity began, some fans, the games took place at the home of the defending champions at the time in Kansas City, booed the athletes. It was widely covered the next day. J.J. Watt saying after the game that it was, quote, disappointing. People were offended. People yelled and screamed as loudly as you can loud and scream on Twitter, which isn't very loudly if you didn't know. And to give some credit to the mob, they had a little, little right to be a little put off. I personally view the booing from the fans as a sign of weakness. Booing the players when they were not doing anything intentionally divisive, a strong argument could be made in the exact opposite, in my opinion, didn't do anything but make the situation much worse off than it needed to be. It was not constructive. It was just toxic victimhood masqueraded as whatever else those very few fans that did it felt like they were displaying. But I don't want to be too hard on the fans. I don't want to be too hard on anyone, except for whom this post is intended. It's all of us to a degree, including myself. In a year unlike anything we had seen in some time, there had been a lot of talk about, quote, activism. The definition for activism is, quote, a doctrine or practice that emphasizes direct vigorous action, especially in support of or opposition to one side of a controversial issue. One might think that we've seen a lot of it, we saw a lot of it in 2020, with everything from COVID to Black Lives Matter to the upcoming November elections. But I would disagree. I would say that mostly is wrong. The definition of activism has been distorted. It has taken a stark turn, and this is not good. As we've talked about constantly, excess dilutes value. When we start to overuse words like activism, they end up going to shit and meaning nothing. And a perfect example took place about three months prior on that Thursday night. On June 2nd, the world took part in an event called Blackout Tuesday, meant as an attempt to show solidarity with the black community after murders, the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. Some actions were taken. Streaming platforms, who spawned the idea, put pauses of 8 minutes and 48 sec 46 seconds on some of their platforms to represent the amount of time that Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck before he died. Some people, particularly in the black community, didn't buy or sell anything to anyone. 
it was encouraged that all people, quote, reflect on racism. But that was not the primary action of most. The primary action of most, highly marketed by Facebook and its subsidiary Instagram, promoted a promoted a posting of a single black square with the hashtag Blackout Tuesday underneath it. People were supposed to post the square and take the day to, quote, again, reflect on racism. Tons of people did it. I did. But there were some that were vehemently against it, one whom, in particular, we should all listen to, Michi Darko of the Flatbush Zombies. Michi Darko didn't just disagree with it. He ripped into everyone on an over five-minute-long Instagram story. It's been deleted, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. Those tweets probably will, too. He called everyone who did it posers, fakes, frauds. He said that the people who took part in the posting of the Black Square were only doing it to fit in with the latest social media trend, to feed the algorithms of Facebook and Instagram and make them money, to make people feel like they fit in and like, like they're woke, to virtue signal. And he was absolutely right. Michi Darko posted a picture of George Floyd, it has since been deleted, hashtagging a bunch of things that were related to conservatives and President Trump, take with that what you will, in order to counteract the virtue signaling. Joey Badass's creative director, Levi Turner, did the same thing, also deleted. Zombie Juice, Darko's best friend and fellow Flatbush zombie, posted a red square to signify the bloodshed and the ab- abuse of black people in America. Michi Darko called out the elephant in the room, one that no one, especially the mob and anti-mob and their affiliates, wanted to see. It would harm their goal of feeling more virtuous than anyone else and shaming the underlings who were below them. The ones that inspired the name of this post. The Slacktivists. You see, the key to actually being an activist is right in the root of the word. You need to be active. These days, a lot of people, people fake their sensitivity to issues in order to look cool or worse, woke. It fits the narrative of both their desire to fit in and their inner narcissist. The thing that is especially despicable about slacktivism is that they think this is okay, to climb their ivory towers and shout their misplaced sense of virtue to the heavens while casting sound bites and tweets of fire and brimstone down on the mere mortals of the lesser society. This is not okay. We do not deserve to treat each other as shitty as we do, or to pretend like we're above everyone else because we have some sense of righteousness that we do not possess. Excess dilutes value, and with issues and in times such as these, we cannot make this mistake. We must not dilute the things that mean the most when it becomes most important for us to use them. Whether it's the anti-mob shouting at coaches, players, and staff at a professional football game for peacefully standing together against racism, or the mob on Facebook and Instagram virtue signaling black squares into being, slacktivism is never okay. It must be stopped. It is a weapon of both sides of the mob. They do not want to build. They only want to destroy. And we must not let them destroy. We must promote true activism and diminish slacktivism. We cannot afford to get the other two confused. In order to construct this argument, we need to dive into slacktivism and its dangers, what real activism is, and why it's not practiced or promoted, and what we can try to do to simultaneously combat the first and increase the second. Please, try not to get offended. When you spontaneously combust, I don't want you to destroy your computer. But if you're a mob member, be offended. Be very offended. I don't give a fuck about your computer, I promise you. Slacktivism, like many things, is a slippery slope. It doesn't just appear out of nowhere. There's a root cause to it. 
and that root cause is good. However, when taken to excess, literally everything becomes complete and utter garbage. There are two definitions of slacktivism, one provided by Urban Dictionary and one provided by Wikipedia. The first states the definition as, quote, the self-deluded idea that by liking, sharing, or retweeting something that you are helping out, end quote. The second states the definition more formally so as, quote, a pejorative term for the practice of supporting a political or social cause by means such as social media or online petitions characterized as involving little effort or commitment. Slacktivism is showing support for a cause with the main purpose of boosting the egos of the participants in the movement, end quote. Who knew Wikipedia could be so savage? I'm glad that they were, because it can't get more clear than what the definition stated. Slacktivism is an appeal to both sides of the mob, an attempt to extort low-level nudge engagement from people who don't really want to get help anything but their own clout in front of others. I don't give a fuck about how many online petitions you signed or how many things you posted. They don't mean shit. They're just bites and pixels spread across our matrix of the internet. But why? Why this methodology of appeal? Well, because emotions work. Emotions are much stronger than logical thoughts. Emotions and impulses run the world. Modern psychology and statistics have proven this over time and time again. If you can elicit a response out of someone with near immediacy, it's probably not because you showed them a spreadsheet. It's because you showed them something that evoked an emotional response. It's why the news media shaved down the length of their segments over time. It's why organizations like Feeding America show commercials with starving children, and why organizations like UNICEF show you, show you impoverished African villages. It's why videos of black men getting killed by white police officers go viral on Twitter. They design their algorithm that way. All of them elicit deep emotional responses, and the people that post and circulate them know it. On the surface, this is fine. It's good for the business of news, who can capitalize on the new functions of our economy pioneered with the algorithms of companies such as Facebook and YouTube. It can get some good people to donate to organizations such as Feeding America and UNICEF. It's probably a good thing that some of these cops, if they are indeed in the wrong with all the context and facts attached, it never happens on Twitter, hence the disclaimer, are getting called out for these appalling actions against law-abiding citizens. As stated above, our obsession with content and information, as we've covered in our Escape from the Matrix series, again, don't read this blog.com if you want to check that out, has taken this into the stratosphere, as is our substitute of mindfulness for mind mindlessness, creating a vortex of nonsense-filled clickbait and narcissism that encapsulates much of our daily life. But on a deeper level, there is something malicious going on. An undercurrent of control and manipulation is at work, particularly among the secondary engagers with this content and information. But why? Why is this particular breed of information getting pushed? Why resort to emotion when so little of it is under our control? When most of it is delivered by shallow and low-level brain impulse than by actual desire for the truth? The answer is virtue. But not the good kind. The kind that wrote our Declaration of Independence and gave us our higher power given inalienable rights. This is the bad kind of virtue. The one that is self-imposed. The one that tricks you into doing something when you are in fact doing nothing. It's easy to post an Instagram story about Breonna Taylor getting shot and why she should get justice. It's a whole other thing to organize a march or charity event to raise money for a broken mother and the rest of her family. It's easy to get angry and to tell other people that they are bad for not doing the same. It is difficult to stay composed, assess the situation from all angles, and then come up with the best way to go about it in constructive yet still gets justice. It feels good to send out a hashtag with hashtag justice for starting off. It's difficult to call it out in public. But that's the thing. 
It makes us feel good. So we don't care. It, quote, boosts our ego, according to the definition. And that it does. Not one week ago, I slammed the horrific... Oh, one week ago at the time. I slammed the horrific movie Cuties and the pedophiles that market and rate it. They're abhorrent. They're disgusting. They should have no place in the higher judgment of anything. But I accomplished absolutely nothing. Who saw those Instagram stories? Not a lot of people. Some of my family and friends, but most likely no one who did anything serious about the film. I succumbed to slacktivism. I let the mob win and control my mind. I thought that I was doing something when I, in fact, was doing nothing. In fact, slacktivism is the main reason why this blog even exists. I alluded to this a little bit in Post and Podcast Zero, but I'll elaborate a little further. I've slammed the self-help industry many a times in this forum. I think it's incredibly disingenuous and dishonest. It doesn't solve much. It doesn't point people in the direction of their true problems. I had had enough of the deceit, of the lies. So I got a WordPress domain and started a blog for about 160 bucks. And I write really fucking long, really fucking wordy, really fucking nested posts. It takes effort to read them. It probably takes you a good amount of time to read them and listen to. And good. Because that's exactly how I want it to be. I don't want it to be easy to read one of my posts. I would much rather have the hard, long truth and the expedient short lie. I care much more about getting the true message across and helping a few people than jerking off to Gary Vaynerchuk videos and throwing a bunch of shit in a Google Doc and bathing it in pre-workout and blasting it out to a million people. It's tasteless. And it's wrong. It doesn't solve anything. It's the antidote to slacktivism. Why? Because I have to put in the effort. I spend about 12 hours at least on a single blog post per week. It takes up to nearly two of the four available hours I have, to work at, I have after work every single day. The other two are dedicated to cleaning, eating dinner, reading whatever books I have tasked myself with that week, and potentially FaceTiming a family member or friend. Other than that, I don't do too much. I'm a pretty boring guy. No wonder why the hinge women don't hit the X on me, or, or wonder why the hinge women hit the X on me all the time. But that is the point of activism, as cited by the above definition. Vigorous action supporting one side of a particular issue. That vigorous action can take many forms, but it still must be in the form of vigorous action. It's choosing the path less traveled, to quote Robert Frost. It's choosing the stake over the sizzle that comes with it. It's creating an environment where real ideas can be exchanged instead of the fluff that surrounds them and encourages all alternative or competing viewpoints to stay away. Yet too few do this. Too few succumb to slacktivism. The biggest shame of it all is that it's used by our ruling class to enslave us to thoughts we would otherwise not have. Those are the top of our institutions that abuse their influence over people that look to them for wisdom. Kendrick Lamar said we shouldn't do that. He's a smart guy, if you haven't noticed. We should listen to him. I'll give you an example. The NBA is the major sports league in America with the biggest majority of African-American players. Due to the events that happened in 2020, the NBA Players Association coordinated with the NBA offices in order to do certain things to promote racial justice. Black Lives Matter was stickered onto the floor of the courts residing in the NBA bubble. All of the coaching staffs wore pins with racial justice emblems on them. But the thing that has been the talk of the NBA restart, or was the talk of the NBA restart, in terms of this cause, are the jerseys being worn by the players. In conjunction with the NBA, the players were allowed to have messages pertaining to social justice stitched on the back of their jerseys while they played. A portion of the proceeds from the sale of those jerseys will be donated to supporting social justice. Vote, Black Lives Matter, Enough, and Say Their Names were popular ones. Most of the NBA players participated in this. 
Donovan Mitchell of the Utah Jazz and Jason Tatum of the Boston Celtics, who are, in my opinion, two of the top three young, brightest stars in the NBA, both donned them in their playoff run. Giannis Antetokounmpo, the Greek freak and soon-to-be-back-to-back league MVP, or was soon-to-be-back-to-back league MVP, did as well. And he's not even from here, hence the name Greek freak. Luka Doncic, the brightest young star in the NBA, hailing from Slovenia, donned, I'm going to fucking butcher this word, I'm sorry, Anak Pravnost. Anak Pravnost. Okay, I'm going to say it that way. Translated into English, it means equality. But there were some other notable exceptions. LeBron James did not do this. He's active on social media, not so much on the back of his jersey. Kind of like the snafu we got into with China and Daryl Morey. Kawhi Leonard didn't have one either. Anthony Davis, nope. James Harden, no. Paul George, nope. Jimmy Butler, nope. When I saw this, I was puzzled. These are the leaders of the NBA. The ones that said on social media and the other platforms they were on that they were taking this issue, quote, very seriously. That they, quote, cared. But why the absence in the back of the jersey? Well, if I were a cynic, hint I am, it's all about the dollars. Always the fucking dollars. Nikki Santoro voice. LeBron James is one of the most commercially successful athletes ever, perhaps only rivaled by Michael Jordan. He currently has a lifetime deal with Nike that's worth over $1 billion, according to his best friend and business partner, Maverick Carter. Ask yourself this. Is it at least possible that LeBron James thought that a message that took such a controversial stance to some would take a hit to his jersey sales and royalty income? You bet your ass it was. LeBron James is good, just as good of a businessman as a basketball player. It doesn't matter if you don't agree with Black Lives Matter, as long as you buy his jersey and feed his Instagram account with your likes. It doesn't matter if the totalitarian government in China shaves the heads of tens of thousands of Muslims, throws them into train cars, and sends them to concentration camps. Nike sales have doubled in that market in the last four years. That's where the growth is. It's the economy, stupid. James Harden has a similar deal with Adidas, Steph Curry with Under Armour. At least Deshaun Watson and Patrick Mahomes had the nads to put them on the chopping block in front of national television, where their pocketbooks could be hit by revenue losses and diminished memorabilia sales. That's what men with personal integrity do. They stand up for what they believe, and maybe know, to be right. They do not succumb to the allures of slacktivism, no matter how enticing they may seem at face value. Men without integrity do not do this. They do the exact opposite, in fact. They shame the other side of the argument. They get outraged and triggered. They lash out against, quote, the other for supposedly not supporting what they are saying. I encountered a situation similarly in that summer. My former best friend had gotten on me for not being actively vocal against the act of violence against George Floyd. He brought my sister up, saying that he would defend her if she had been insensibly attacked by someone. My sister has autism, by the way. And he was right. But only to a degree. The key to this conversation is the personalization. If someone goes up to someone and calls them the C-word or the N-word or a retard or something else, of course you should step in and say something. That type of vitriol towards one person should not be tolerated, particularly if something that is outside the person, person's control, like their ethnicity, or, eth, ugh, God, ethnicity, gender, or potential disability. But I didn't know George Floyd personally. I wasn't really in touch with the issue at all, to be honest. When it happened, I certainly saw how big of a deal it was. I took the time to read up on the issues and get my information right. I partook in Blackout Tuesday, even though I took it down later. I wrote a whole damn blog post on it and make a 23-minute YouTube video explaining my stance, which has since been deleted. But the song remains the same. What did I actually do? Nothing. The most important part of the whole thing to me was learning a thing or two about racism. But I caved to the mob, 
I bent a knee and bowed before their virtue. I should have known better, but because I'm part of the most disrespected and understated minority community in the history of the world. Because the disability community has been shit on more times than I can mention. We get fucked by every level of the government on the regular. Our unemployment rate is upwards of 80%. Our rates of heart disease and obesity are through the roof, most particularly in young children. They're bullied more. Our mental health is terrible, particularly on the caregiver side of the equation. They're allocated no additional resources in hardly, ever, hardly any of our education systems. Our families drive themselves into financial and personal ruin because of a lack of ability and knowledge to know what to do when something like this happens. We've been the silent group of any major group of the oppressed in history. Hitler threw disabled people into the ovens. Mao left them to starve. Stalin shot them in the back of the head or sent them to Siberia. But you will never find me shaming anyone for not supporting them. Why? Because we have different values, you see. Some people won't care as much about this issue as me. Some people won't give a single shit. Others will laugh. And I have to accept it. And I do. I encourage it, actually. It's better for humanity if we all cared about different things. Not just the same thing. I want people to care about climate change. I want people to care about racial injustice. I want people to care about health care. But I absolutely will not tolerate the wrongly induced shame by any of those groups, including my own. The anti-mob and mob thrive on shame. It's their oxygen. It's what keeps them going. It's what gives them all their power and strength. This is the, quote, you want the terrorists to win, and quote, you want the all minorities to suffer and die crowd. Of course no rational person believes these things. But that's exactly why they say them. Because if you submit, if you don't submit, if you don't bow, you're the other, the person that doesn't care, the pariah, the enemy. This extends to institutions as well. These are where the bullshit phrases of, quote, anti-American and, quote, cultural appropriation doesn't come in. Having a problem with something going on in America doesn't mean you hate America. No anti-mob member kneeling for the national anthem does, n does not mean that those who, want kneel, who kneel want to burn Washington, D.C. to a crisp. America. Invoking another culture does not mean you're demoting that culture. I bet the mob affiliate that criticized the president's treatment of Hispanics this week at an indoor convention and snapchatted a picture of a Chipotle burrito within the same time frame. Hint, it's not real Mexican food, hon. Huh? Appropriation. See the outro of America by Logic for more examples of how bullshit this specific claim is. When it all comes down to it, slacktivism is just one big old buttfuck of the third don't. Don't be a hypocrite. It's never okay, especially when there are real issues that need to be discussed. Next, we move to real activism and why it's not practiced. As we saw in the beginning of the first section, the definitions of activism and slacktivism differ quite significantly. But why do they do so? What is the root of this cause? What makes the two converge? I think a good example lies with our friend Jordan Peterson. In his book, 12 Rules for Life, which is a serious heavyweight contender for the greatest book I've ever read, it manifests into one of Peterson's rules. Rule number seven, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Peterson's book is very long and incredibly deep. It took me two weeks to read it, double the amount of time that I normally spent on a book that year. This particular chapter was the most difficult to comprehend, as well as the longest. Peterson, in his typical style, bobs and weaves his way through arguments like an elegant boxer. 
He throws in biblical literature by setting Cain and Abel, shakes a bit of 20th century totalitarianism on top, and then throws it in the oven for 350 at 45 minutes after soaking it in the wisdom of Friedrich Nietzsche. Peterson opens the chapter with an explanation of the rise of religion, citing mostly Christianity, and its decline into the more secular, although that is to be disputed according to people like Tim Keller in the more, I would say, impoverished regions in the world like Sub-Saharan Africa. Nietzsche's biggest contribution to the world was what he called the death of God and the rise of the Superman. Basically, Nietzsche saw Christi through Christianity to form an opinion that was in fact disempowering to people and not empowering as so many thought. Nietzsche thought it held people back from reaching their full potential, as an appeal to the collective most likely comes at the expense of the individual. That's the fundamental difference to be of the Eastern and Western worlds are when it boils down to it. Nietzsche's argument shook the world. It changed history in more ways than we can count. No public intellectual had taken this type of stance before, deliberately spitting in the face of organized religion and turning their back on it. But Nietzsche did, in a way, although I think that gets misinterpreted a lot. And the world got flipped on its head. On one hand, this was empowering. It allowed people to take some responsibility for their own selves and transcend their circumstances, the thesis of Peterson's book, by the way. It allowed people to see that they were more than just a part of a group. The appeal to individualism ran true to everyone who could understand it, and it led to a radical revolution of the way things were conducted. But it was not without its counter-effects, without its abuse. Some people took this too far. Some people thought they could use their newfound supermandom to reinvent the world in their image. They wanted to play God, not defy him. A bold proposition to make. This is where Peterson draws the line. While Nietzsche influenced countless people, including Peterson, Carl Jung, Mark Manson, and so many others, there was one individual from his home country of Germany that he had a prominent influence on as well. Adolf Hitler. Hitler held Nietzsche in incredibly high regard. He saw his brilliance and was inspired by it. Hitler thought he could channel his inner Superman in order to rebuild Germany into better than the world power it once was, and to create a new world order. I don't think Nietzsche had the whole genocide in mind when he wrote Thus Spoke Zarathustra. According to Peterson, Rule 7 is the empowerment of the individual, but to do so with what powers things, with that power things that are truly worth doing, to pursue meaning, not expediency. A lot of people have objectively said, objectively said Hitler was one of the most meaningful people in world history. Even though everyone contends that he might be the worst human being in modern times, he built an empire. Builders of empires get remembered, deified even. They get remembered as people who created something incredible, and in this case, incredibly horrifying. But those people would be wrong. Hitler could have rebuilt Germany in a different way. He could have seen, done something to lower the greatest hyperinflation we have ever seen. He could have eaten a little bit of crow and made peace to the leaders of the world, particularly in the Allied powers. He could have done what he had done to defeat communism, instead of allying with it only to pursue his own selfish goals. But he didn't. What Hitler did wasn't hard. It wasn't great. It was expedient. Expediency of the worst form we potentially have ever seen. It's hard to promote healthy economic growth. It's expedient to form your whole economy around the destruction and domination of the rest of the world. It's hard to promote equal rights and fair treatment of people. It's easy to, thro easy to throw Jews, people with disabilities, and anyone else who doesn't look like you into concentration camps and ovens. It's hard to do what is meaningful. It's easy to do what is expedient. This is the balance. This is the line between order and chaos. And it is the line between activism and slacktivism as well. It is hard to get a true movement going for something. 
It is hard to get people to actually commit to doing anything. The difference is in the doing, as the old saying goes. It's easy to sit on your mom's couch and cast virtue down from whatever heavens you claim to inhabit. It's hard to actually get up and do what is meaningful, and to not succumb to the expediency of life. It is for this reason that heroes emerge. It is Rosa Parks, sitting wherever she damn well pleases on a bus in Alabama. It is George Washington, deciding to sail across the river to attack the British while they enjoy Christmas. It is Frederick Douglass, testifying that the 4th of July doesn't mean anything to him while most black Americans are not free men and women. It is Chris Kyle, doing four tours of duty of hell in the Middle East because he felt that he was his duty to do so. It is Luke Skywalker, deciding to leave his moisture farm on Tatooine to pursue something bigger than himself and to save the galaxy in Jedi Order. It is Frodo, leaving the Shire to destroy the One Ring. It is Steve Rogers, deciding to step up out of his shell and become Captain America. A hero can be anyone. It is a call to adventure, the great leap forward into the unknown. There is no harder place, both in life and physics, to gain momentum than at the start of the journey. And so many people do not take this step. They stay where they are at simply because it's easier to stay where they are. Is there meaning in that? There might be. But those who never try will never know. That is their blessing or their curse. The shame is that they never give themselves to figure out which one it is. It's also a giant red flag of the first don't, don't be fake. The purpose of the first don't is to give you authenticity, to practice what you preach. When slacktivism is involved, all of that goes out the window. You don't practice anything but doing nothing. What goes in motion stays in motion. What is at rest stays at rest until an outside force acts upon it. When you constantly inhibit and extrapolate your fake sense of nonsensical nothing, you only manifest more of it within yourself. You betray your identity. You lie. For the longest time, I was puzzled at why this was. Why would people willingly lie not to just others, but themselves? Why would they say that they were doing something when they were in fact doing nothing? Why would they become slacktivists and not activists? The main conclusion that I would come to is that people don't want to face consequences. This is slacktivism to a T. You can make a burner Twitter account with a burner email and go to town on anyone you wish. Just ask Kevin Durant, he'll tell you. You don't even need a driver's license to make a Facebook account. You just need some type of ad and that'll do. When you remove consequences, anything goes. More people would rob places and do malevolent things that the police to stop them. Crime is skyrocketing in cities that have disbanded police forces and taken anti-police stances. More people would cheat on school assignments if more class was held online and more professors didn't want to actually um, teach, I know because I was one of them. College campuses could write nearly every single student in America up for academic dishonesty right now, but they don't. The consequences of their own failures would be too great. But yet I can understand the impulses of this party of people. It gives you a sense that you're in the game. A sense that you're doing something. It gives you a community with people that they are doing the same thing. I can understand why many people fall into the trap. But as Dolores Umbridge once made Harry Potter shave into his own hand, I must not tell lies. This is merely propaganda pushed by both sides of the mob. A ploy to get you to betray who you are, a person who has a moral obligation to pursue meaning, into a brainless pawn who just does their dirty work for them. You can find a community, sure, but it will be of poor company. They will be just as sad and empty as expedient as you, wasting themselves away while running on a treadmill of slacktivism, thinking that they're getting something done while they're getting nowhere at all. But, most maliciously, it does something worse than that. It corrupts the value of time itself. 
It takes no time to send a woke tweet or to repost an Instagram story. It takes no effort to call someone a racist on Twitter or to say to a, quote, friend on Facebook that they, quote, want the terrorists to win. It takes time to come up with a nuanced response, one that challenges your beliefs while still making an argument for them. It takes time to acknowledge that this person is most likely not a racist, and this other individual does not want the terrorists to win, whatever the fuck that means. It takes time to make real change. Not a lot of people notice that. It holds true for my example of my something bigger in the first section. Not a lot of people take the time to volunteer for an hour to notice how happy it can make a disabled child that doesn't interact with anyone outside of their immediate outcome. To see the combined relief of stress and immediate, immediate bliss of their caregiver when they're allowed the joy of true expression. To fulfill the antithesis of the first don't. To see the effects snowball over time and change for the better because of it. But these things take time. They take effort. They take a cumulative eff- effect. It's not a dopamine hit. It's a slow burn. It took built-up courage for Rosa Parks to take a seat on that bus. For Luke Skywalker to board the Millennium Falcon. For Chris Kyle to go back to Iraq for the fourth time. That's why a lot of people don't notice them. They're all addicted to their own expediency, high on their own validation. Not a lot of people want to wait. Not a lot of people want the patience that comes with truly making a difference, to truly pursuing your own personal something bigger. So they succumb. They bow to either side of the mob. And they do it willingly, because they're afraid and weak, just like Adolf Hitler. They don't want meaning. They only want expedience, and their own benefits that can come along with it. The key is to be vigilant on both sides of the fight for your soul, to simultaneously play offense and defense. And that's next. So, it's all led to this. We need to learn how to combat slacktivism and increase activism. We can do them at the same time, which is the most effective way. This is not multitasking, but binary. A simple doing of one will decrease the not doing of another. But how? The first suggestion I would make in this regard is to do everything in your power to discourage mob and anti-mob behavior. Call out the call-outs. But we can also cannot and should not stoop to their level. What you need to do in that regard is undo their fast-feeling actions with their slow-thinking actions, much like how our brains work. With proper implementation and judgment, you can nearly win every argument with a mobster. But here is another important point. It should not be about simply winning the argument. That will make you no different than the mobster you are trying to win against. In the words of Colin Cowherd, being right is much more important than getting it right. Or getting it right is much more important than being right. Oh, jeez. That's misinformation. Um... The best ways to do this is through proper preparation and a citing of your sources. I pride myself on a few things while blogging and podcasting and in my book, and this is one of them. However, I didn't start doing it until mid of tw- the middle of 2020. I wish I had started much earlier. If you look at my very earliest posts, there were no hyperlinks to references. There was no information inside of my blogs that was anything other than what I considered to be my word. And I will be the first to tell you that that was a massive mistake. Most blogs... Excuse me, most blogs and in fact most sources of information out there will derive their information and quote facts from nothing informative or factual at all. They will simply spew whatever fucking thought out of their head that they want in order to get clicks and increase their advertising revenue. Both sides of the mob do the same thing. 
They try to create mountains out of molehills while digging with a plastic shovel not unlike one you'd find in a suburban sandbox. It's incredibly flimsy and not a great tool to use, especially when dealing with issues that are of true importance. Now I've learned not to do this. I cite sources from all over the damn place. I look up YouTube videos. I've looked up scholarly articles. I reference books, movies, and podcasts. I sort of cite enlightenment literature and philosophy. I've pulled things from left, right, and center of the political aisle. Because the truth comes in many forms, not the ones that are convenient to your own ideology. When you do your homework and research, you may find the things that are uncomfortable, that challenges your beliefs about things and perceptions about people. It happens to me quite often. It's not a great feeling when it happens, but in my estimation, having the truth, or at least what the Matrix deems is the truth, is always better than not knowing it for, it for sure. At least you know where you stand. Both sides of the mob can't stand this because it interferes with their slacktivist tendencies to distort and manipulate everything under the sun. They do not like real information. It conflicts with whatever dogma they want to spew. Your job as, hopefully, a non-mob affiliate is to do everything in your power to undermine their pointless arguments that lead to the aforementioned distortion and manipulation. Pull facts. Ask questions. Do everything you can to challenge them. Maybe you'll be wrong when you look at it. It'll sting, but at least you'll know. But additionally, maybe you're right and people will see it. And that will be very important. That will show that you're an activist. You've actively done something and invested into idea of an exception of simply spewing out whatever was expedient. Why do you want to defund the police? What will it solve? Why are you so against protesting the national anthem? Is a protest still, quote, mostly peaceful if a person gets shot? Why do you align yourself with everything that is a political party or politician of your choosing says, even though you claim to be a sovereign individual? Are all cops really bastards? Are all protesters really violent thugs and looters? Do you not believe that black lives matter? Is Black Lives Matter a good organization to support, or are there better ones? Any of these will do. I encourage you to ask them. I have before. They've led me soon to some enlightening conversations and reflection. I think they will do the same for you, should you be brave and honest enough to have them. But this is not enough. The next step is much more important, and it's something we talked about in my article on mindfulness, my podcast on mindfulness. Go back and listen to it. It is the art of mindfulness itself. In all instances, particularly pertaining to ones such as this, you must be mindful of what you do and what you say. Are you really doing something? Or are you just aligning yourself up with either mob for some other purpose? In The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, Mark Manson talks about this exact same principle. It's the one that a lot of people have talked about. He just gave it a name. There are a lot of people that talk about doing a lot of things. Starting a business, losing weight, creating a family, overcoming social anxiety and other mental health issues. Yet so few people take the initiative to do so. Why is this? Well, at least for me, I think humans have an incredibly unique ability to see into the future. Our brains are so interconnected with endless variables of life and possibilities of everything else that we look incredibly far into the future and see what could potentially come out of it. But this also has side effects. For me, and for many others, we overthink every fucking thing. We see all the ways we can fall before we see a way where we could potentially stand. We psych ourselves out of every action that we paralyze ourselves from taking any actions at all, and this is not good. Which brings us back to Manson. Manson's idea was that we could counter this by just simply doing something, anything, one little thing. In fact, he so aptly named it the do-something principle. It's very hard to get an object at rest to get into motion. Shout out to Isaac Newton. So, don't strain yourself. Just do something. When I have a very long and complicated podcast like this, I always go into it with how I could do one of two things. Roast myself or bring in something from the culture. 
I'm good at both of them and they make me laugh. Once I'm settled on one of the two, it always amazes me how something can come out of it and lead to a wellspring of ideas that end up filling a whole outline. This type of mindfulness is rare, I think. The same pertains to slacktivism. Slacktivism is the complete opposite of mindfulness. It is mindlessness personified. It refuses to answer the ultimate question. What are you doing? What are you doing? Not what you plan on doing. Not what you're yelling at other people for what you should believe they should be doing. No. What are you doing? Are you being a part of the problem, the solution, or the weird fucking thing that happens in between where you're not being a part of either and just commenting on it? Hint, slacktivism is that weird fucking thing. Dan Crenshaw sheds a light about this in the introduction of his book Fortitude. Living as a congressman in our nation's capital, Crenshaw naturally sees a lot of protesters. This is commonplace for anyone who lives in D.C., I would imagine. But one day while walking between buildings, Crenshaw saw something that truly troubled him, as it should anyone. A group of protesters were wearing shirts with, quote, stay outraged emblazoned on the front of them. This puzzled Crenshaw, and it would to any non-slacktivist. So you're just going to be outraged and stay that way for as long as possible? What are you trying to accomplish? What are your goals? What are you doing? Outrage in the mob that perforates it does nothing to answer these questions. It discourages being mindful in your actions, behaviors, and thoughts. Slacktivism is the, simply the weapon most of those folks choose to carry out those ends. Remember the two definitions of the two words. They are not the same thing. When in doubt, do something. Finally, the last thing that I would recommend is, to, is very fundamental. When in doubt, be selfless and not selfish. Put yourself in constructive places where you can practice activism and avoid slacktivism. Surround yourself with people who want the best for the true cause. There are a lot of people out there who talk out of both sides of their mouth. They say that they want one thing while doing something completely asymmetrical. You need to avoid them at all costs. I believe we all know who we are deep down. You know who people are and what they stand for. Your association with those people is your choice and yours alone. Do something. Go out and volunteer. Start a weekly meeting group to talk about some issues. Donate to the charity of your choice. Create an organization within your work that talks about these issues by committing time and effort into helping them. Talk about your feelings. Put away social media by, for an extended period of time. Maybe never go back. Because in the times that are most trying, like the ones that we are currently living in today, the last thing you can afford is to be a selfish asshole who only cares about themselves. The way we combat division is through service. It doesn't matter what that service is, unless that service is good at the core. When you only aim to satisfy yourself, you inevitably will come around to hurt someone else. This pertains to who you associate to, or to you, whom you associate with too. When you hang out with selfish people, you absorb that through osmosis. Their toxic behaviors start steeping into your walls and infecting you. You cannot allow this to happen. Hold those close to you accountable. Do not let them break your stride and affect you and your mission. They are too important to be wasted. Slacktivism is dangerous and malevolent, yet it is sneaky and stealthy as well. It is a constant creep within the deep recesses of our minds that inevitably will develop a stranglehold over your behaviors and thoughts. It will corrupt you into nothingness and destroy your inner initiative with its deceit and lies. Only through true activism, to the constant reinforcement of things that actually do something, will we be free to make true changes. Lots of things have happened. It feels like these last three years have been ten sandwiched into one. It is one that we will never forget. It is a time we will never forget. 
it has exposed problems. But the only way to fix those problems is to move towards them, not away from them. The United States Marine Corps has the commercial that states that they, quote, move towards the sound of chaos. This is the right approach. Only through active intervention within chaos, only with true advancement towards an issue, can the issue be solved. Those who sit on the sidelines and simply comment on it, the slacktivists, offer no value. Their only value is exposing who they really are, should we choose to see it. When in doubt, be active. Do not be passive. Default aggressive should be the mode at all times. Create the opportunity. In the words of Bushwick Bill, there are three types of people in the world, quote, those who don't know what happened, those who wonder what happened, and people like us from the streets that make things happen, end quote. Make things happen. And when you do, let a homie like Snoop Doggy Dog know. All right, guys, that is the post for the week. So again, I, um, I like that post. I think it's a, uh, it's a very good post to check yourself, to check other people, to make sure that we're all kind of doing the right things, being nice to each other for one thing, doing constructive things for another thing. And I think that it's a very, very useful skill to have. So again, guys, the positive reception I've had for Value Economics, Study of Identity, my book that is coming out on all digital platforms on June the 28th has been so overwhelmingly positive. I, I honestly can't believe it. So thank you guys so much for the love, for the support, for everything you guys have you know, done over the last couple of weeks to support this platform, the book, the blog, everything else. So again, guys, I really, really appreciate it. Open the day, open your mind. See you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?